This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, we've got a serious topic as we talk about Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Russia, uh, Richard, this show is called The Libertarian, and when it comes to foreign policy, libertarians run anywhere from completely isolationist to barely interventionist. So where do you fall as the general matter on that, on that line? I'm more on the interventionist side, but I'm always nervous about it. Look, the first question you always have to ask is, how do you think about international relations? And it's much more complicated than ordinary individual cases, because inside each country, you have elaborate coalitions, and they have to figure out what it is they want to do. Because nations, when they go to war, have to act collectively, whether they like to or not. Uh, so what you do is you strip away the complexities of international relations with governments and start looking at individuals. And then what you do is immediately you start worrying about the distinction between aggression on the one hand and self-defense on the other. And it's between two parties. This is never an easy determination because there's always the antecedent action that the other one might have done in order to provoke what's going on. And one of the reasons why this problem so difficult is that in international relations, it could be always the Germans in September of 1939 who says it was the Polish cavalry who invaded their space. So all they were doing is responding in self-defense. And of course, that means it's obviously abused. And Mr. Putin, I think, is engaged in the same activities here. Uh, if you do this, then you have to kind of figure out who the true aggressor is and who's not. And it's between the two original parties. I don't have any doubt about this. Putin, for all sorts of reasons of grandeur, is obviously the guy who decided to do this. There's no way in God's earth that it turns out Ukraine could take over any portion of Russia or that they would even want to do so. So that's pretty easy. Uh, the next question, though, is an extremely difficult one. What are the positions of third parties when they see aggression taking place? And assuming that they correctly answer, that is, it's pretty clear that the law, quote unquote, states that if you intervene on the side of the guy who is in fact an aggressor, you're compounding the wrong. But if you intervene on the side of the innocent party, what you're trying to do is to rectify. And so there's nothing illegal about doing that under the traditional views. If some woman is being mugged on the street and a strong man comes along and beats away the assailant, he cannot say, hey, you weren't involved in this particular suit. So when you hit me, I could basically sue you. Uh, in this case, you have exactly the same trouble. But the great question that libertarianism does not answer, nor does any other theory answer, is are you entitled or are you obligated to come in in order to save the third party? And I think the answer in virtually all of these cases is it's just too strong to put this as an obligation. Uh, anytime you intervene to save a third person, what happens is you're putting yourself at risk necessarily. You're having to expend resources. It may create complications and other arrangements that you have with other parties. So the rule has always been you're entitled to do so. And if you're right, you're in protected against any charges and you could help the good guy. But the there's no obligation. When you get to the international arrangements, it's exactly the same thing. In the absence of any kind of treaty arrangements, you're entitled to but not obliged to do it, which means that there's a huge policy state that you have to be able to answer from uh, passivity on the one hand to aggressive intervention on the other, but which libertarian theory doesn't give you an answer in the national case any more than it gives you an answer in the individual case. So that's why it's such a difficult question. 
So then the next question you have to ask is, okay, uh, where do you want to come out on this? And this turns out to be a kind of a mixture between altruism on the one hand and prudence on the other hand. And it gets you to the question of how much aid you give and why. And so I have no doubt that the United States ought to do something, has done something in order to help the Ukraine. Uh, But the acid test is, what are we giving them? Financial sanctions, military supply, or are we going to put soldiers on the ground and attack them in the air and all the rest of that stuff. The United States, I think, ruled off the physical intervention for fear of escalation very early on in the process. It never put troops into um, Ukraine that would do it. And what it did do is make a great blunder in Afghanistan by the disorderly and rather disgraceful district organized by uh, Biden, who was a very bad commander in chief in that situation. So we're already starting this behind the, the eight wall. I do think that the United States will intensify aid in terms of military support. I think NATO will do that. I think they'll impose sanctions. Uh, whether or not you want to go the next step, not really clear to me whether you do or you don't. I'm not, I don't know enough about the situation. But if I were this, I would say, given the Russian tendency at this point, um, you may have to station troops back in Poland, Lithuania, and so forth, which I dislike doing because I think it will only provoke the Russian bear. On the other hand, they're already provoked. And then you also, I think, really have to make sure that the Chinese don't try to cross the Straits of Taiwan, because uh, given what they've seen about the United States and its rather feckless activities, it may well be that we need a show of military force in that domain. So this problem is fiendishly complicated because it's not only the immediate dispute that you have to worry about, it's all the spinoffs around the rest of the globe. If Putin gets away with this, the rest of the world is a much more dangerous place. If the United States and its allies in Europe could find a way to stop this particular situation, it's fine. Uh, Do I think NATO is the answer? Well, that I'll just answer this one point. It, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but the United States has under so-called Article 5 obligations to come to the assistance of any NATO member, which is attacked until the UN intervenes, which is, of course, never. Uh, so this thing really has the kindling to spread very, very wide. If people are not apprehensive about the situation, they don't understand its full gravity. If they're competent about the answer, they don't understand its full complexity. I put myself more on the hawkish side amongst libertarians on this, but that doesn't give you an answer to all the specific questions that you have to face. You mentioned these uh, these terms, are we entitled or obligated to act? I want to know legally if if the United States, and it looks like we will be sending um, at least military munitions, weapons uh, to help the Ukrainian resistance, does that make the United States a co-combatant in any sort of international law that, that Putin could use as, I don't know, justification to do even more terrible things? Absolutely. I mean, look, it turns out that the only way you can avoid this is to follow the strictures of what they used to call the Neutrality Act, uh, which was you would not give aid or support or comfort to either of two combatants in a situation. So you'd have to reduce yourself to the position of Switzerland in World War. Too. And the United States is not doing that. So Putin is certainly entitled to think that we're attacking him, but we're entitled to say oh, we're attacking him because he's attacked somebody else and he's the wrongdoer. Now, you will never persuade Mr. Putin that he's the wrongdoer on everything. I recently read a, station on, a statement on memory with somebody who's trying to understand his mind, and, and Putin clearly is a warped mind in many ways. He's still bitter about the defeats in 1989 to 1991 when the old Soviet empire was disbanded. Uh, He has dreams of grandeur. 
He basically treats uh, Ukraine and Russia from his point of view as being the same sovereign, loving country, even though there's been massive conflicts between these two countries over the last hundred years and before. And, and he regards it not only as a point of economic necessity, but of moral and political prudence to take this thing over. So when you have a guy with those sorts of imperatives, he does not prepare to live in peace. And what happens, therefore, is I think it's highly unlikely that if we took the perfectly sensible position, look, we're going to keep these guys out of NATO. You just stay out of there. We're not going to come in if you don't go in. I don't think Putin would accept that deal. I think he just went too far already. So it's not that I think we were right to extend the northeastern, the North Atlantic treaty obligation to cover Moldavia and other places very close to Russia. Uh, but I don't, I'm not sure how much difference it made. I think he's just smarting all the way. And once he saw the rather indifferent response that we had to the uh, basically the Soviet, the Russian overtaking of Crimea and other kinds of areas in the Far East, I think he thought that the West was going to be feckless. It's one of these absolutely fiendishly difficult questions is just how do you bear your soul? And the usual test that people ask, and it's so difficult to apply, is do we quote unquote have an interest in what takes place in the Ukraine? And you could see some people saying, well, you know, it's 4,000 miles from the nearest point of the United States. Who gives a darn what they're going to do there? And there are others who say this is a world of dominoes. If you start there, by the time you're done, you're going to be marching into Paris, and maybe we have an interest in what takes place in France. So the debates on theory are never going to be resolved to the satisfaction of everybody. And the debates on facts are never going to be resolved with sufficient clarity. So there'll just be an enormous amount of disputation. My own view is that the start of all of this was just a terrible blunder. Uh, Biden, in my view, made the worst decision ever by a commander in chief when he decided to pull out of Afghanistan in the middle of the summer in 2021. I regard this as a price that you have to pay for that kind of stupidity. I think he's done a little bit better here. Uh, but in my view, the United States just has to completely change its focus and to understand that this is a very terrible world, uh, that we're going to be fighting two front wars and everything else, and that we have to focus on military excellence and we have to get rid of all the crazy diversions that the Biden administration is putting into place with respect to climate change and woke education inside the military. Militaries are designed to fight and win wars. And the moment you give them other objectives, what happens is you take away from them the things that they have to do and you put them on a different course, which is only going to weaken them in the operation of their essential missions. Let's talk about, well, politics uh, by other means, which is why, why is why is Putin even doing this? Like you mentioned, Ukraine is not attacking Russia. It couldn't dominate russia so why is he do do you buy this this uh, idea from putin that hey uh ukraine is really just a long lost part of of russia it's not really even its own country so we're reunifying there do you think that he is just trying to snuff out democracy do you really think he's worried about nato i mean is this the first of more territory annexations are we done here no, we're not done with anything, because I think it's not that he's aiming at this point for France, but everything that was a former Soviet republic, I think he would like to reclaim in one form or another. And that goes from the Baltic all the way down through the Ukraine. So, I mean, I regard this man as a genuine menace on this particular point. And I think that in other places where he's yet to attack, we have to put a presence there so that he essentially is going to initiate contact with American or NATO troops in various locations. I mean, I, I regard this man as a menace. Now, what do we say? He's our long-lost brother. 
Well, at the one point he does that. Another point he says we have to denazify our country. Well, that's obviously madness. Um, you know, the Soviet Union fought with the Ukrainians against the German. You know, Zelenko basically said, my father was in the army. He's a Jewish guy. He's not a Nazi and so forth. So what he's doing, he's, he's taking the standard idea that there is this enormous provocation that he has to put out. The provocation is highly ephemeral and completely imaginary, but the response to it is deadly and wrong. And do I think he knows what's going on? Well, with people who are semi-paranoid, it's kind of difficult to understand. Uh, I regard him as a kind of a split personality. I think he's devilishly shrewd on strategic matters, but I think he has delusions of grandeur on larger kinds of issues, nurses grievances that no sane man ought to have. So I regard him as extremely dangerous because he's excellent on tactics and absolutely bizarre on the end kind of principle. And what we have to do is we have to ramp up our particular game and we have to get everybody else into shape. Now, what are the things that we have to do that are the obvious way. You know, forget all this senseless stopping of fracking in the export. We're beginning to do this. Global warming is probably the 88th most important problem on the list. If you just looked at the temperature figures from 2021, they're basically within tiny fractions of a degree for what temperatures were in 1980. Um, the thing is going up and down, but it's certainly not going berserk and out of shape. So forget about all of that. And what you have to do is to open up the spigot's wife to guarantee supplies of oil and natural gas to people in Western Europe. Tell them to shut down the pipelines with respect to Russia. That's the most devastating thing that we can start to do to them in the long run. Instead of being in their aid by uh, shutting down American facilities so that the Russian facilities can add carbon dioxide oxide into the air. And then what you have to do is you have to get kind of trade agreements with these countries so that they're sure that if they can't sell their produce into the Russian market, they could sell it everywhere else. So all the kind of protectionist incomes and the semi-hysterical global instincts that you have on warming are the present. They just have to go. And, and it's very difficult to do that. When you have a man like John Kerry, whose warped visions, I think, know no power, he still regards global warming as an existential crisis because he hasn't looked at any new piece of data that has come down in the last seven years. So doing all of that background stuff, I think, is there. And then, you know, we have to go back to what Trump said. Um, you know, NATO can't simply be a free rider on this. They can't get along with putting 1% of their uh, GDP into military stuff. They're going to have to get themselves up to 2 3 maybe even 4%. Same thing with respect to Taiwan. We must remember the United States in the 50s would spend as much as 6% of its GDP on military situation. It's not an unsustainable burden. It's easier to bear now than it was then. Uh, but if you go into this thing uh, with no sufficient forces to deal with multidimensional wars in different markets, you're in a terrible problem. And the United States is just so slow in rebuilding its Navy with capital ships of one kind or another, in developing and bringing to bear new kinds of Air Force um, plane, and in basically educating and expanding its military service through a sensible educational program uh, in the um, West Point and the other service academies. Uh, Biden is just terrible on all these issues. And he essentially has to understand that his progressive silliness is not going to win this stuff. Unfortunately, we have to be strong and tough because we're facing not only him, you're facing strong men in Iran, strong men in South in North Korea, and you're facing a Chinese menace, which has really expansionist ideals covering not only Taiwan um, in the Far East, uh, but also covering all sorts of things having to do with the China Sea and the South China Sea and everything else. They've got their eyes in there on everybody, and they think they see in the United States a patsy. And so long as 
that fundamental perception holds, and it will hold so long as it's accurate, we're in for a very rough sledding. Last thing I want to ask you, Richard, what's the quick, what's the elevator pitch for, for, to, to a libertarian who thinks this is too far away, this is not our fight, why would we even send weapons? NATO is on the border and is, and is you know, kept Russia out of those countries, and this is not one of those countries. Why not let Putin have his buffer to Europe? Well, I'm in favor of letting him have a buffer, but I think he wants more than a buffer. He could get a buffer by simply saying, if you pull your troops out, I won't put my troops in. I think the problem with that theory is he doesn't want a buffer. I think he wants a reconquest. And so long as his ambitions are that grand, uh, then the prudent strategy, which I strongly endorse, is not going to work under these circumstances. So what we have to do is have to man up these particular forces, put some real heft behind this thing so as to make sure that this remains a local conflict. At this particular point, I don't think it's probably wise or prudent to have direct military engagements with what's going on in the Ukraine. Uh, But if it turns out they start to engage in civilian slaughter or something else like that, then maybe even air intervention by the United States or by the Israeli or by some phantom force might regrettably become necessary. This is a very bad situation. A lot is going to depend on how this goes on the ground. Uh, The Ukrainians are not as well armed as the Russians, but they have the home court advantage, and they certainly don't regard themselves as being citizens of a greater Russian republic. They hate the Russians for very, very good reasons in the areas that he's trying to conquest. If you wanted to have a deal which says the Russian-speaking areas could be relatively autonomous republics so long as they stay out of the rest of Ukraine, one could live with that. I don't think one could live with a conquest of this area and the brutality that's going to follow if the Russians take Kiev and lots of all other places in the Ukraine. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends, rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.